2010, uh, the NFL draft was stacked. Isaiah Simmons from Clemson won the Dick Buck this award that year. The kid was a player. 238, ran like a 439-40. I think he was the eighth or ninth pick. Went to the Arizona Cardinals. And I tell you, I always loved him. I would have loved to have seen him in a Giant uniform. Giants took Andrew Thomas that year. By the way, great pick. He's going to be all pro this year without question. But today, and I'm leading with this, today the Giants made a bold move, traded a seventh-round pick for Isaiah Simmons. And I'm telling you, he's going to fit right in with the Wink Martindale defense, which I know everybody wants to talk about. But that's neither here nor there because now it's 102 on the East Coast. And this is Market Call. Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, believe it or not, EY from SoFi is back. Elizabeth will be joining us. Butters, I don't know what the hell he's doing. Like he's, He must be like, uh, what do they call that thing? Like Epcot or something. Butters would fit right in at Epcot is my sense. Uh, so no Butters today. He'll be back tomorrow. But this is Market Call. Today's Market Call, of course, brought to you by SoFi, Dan. Get your money right all in one app. And, of course, facts at financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. You can tell I'm excited. I mean, I'm just loving what the Giants have been putting together piece by piece uh how are you uh, you're doing i i feel like you've had this sort of sentiment shift you you've kind of <clears throat> switched gears from baseball to football here and, well, and I think well, your yankee well, well, your yankees well. have made it easy for you to do that i think yeah. that's a big part of it so you're really excited and we're gonna have this i think this little period at some point probably mid to late october where you really start setting your sights on the new york rangers okay uh, like, i'm I, always i never take my sights away by the way as you know dan they signed uh Alexei Lafreniere yesterday, two-year deal. I think 4.35 all in. Got to get him locked up. I think you're going to see big things out of him this year. You know, it takes people time to develop in that league. It's, it's, a, it's a league of men. He's still a young man. And I think you're going to really see him, not only him, but Capo Caco and, of course, the great Philip Heedle flourish under this new regime. You brought it up, not me. Now I, you're really. I did. Bring, we must be so busy with all of our shows that you don't call in to the, the to the Boomer uh, and and Geo show anymore. Because guy from Morristown used to have. Uh, that's where you used to kind of get these. Uh, you know, get this out of your system a little bit. All right, guy. Let, let's talk about this here because I think you know we had Doug Cass on yesterday at this time. I think we were all in agreement. We don't know who's left to buy Nvidia. The expectations were sky high. Um, they exceeded them for the quarter. They exceeded them for the guidance. And still, you know, the stock had, had moved up in the aftermarkets eight nine you know percent or so. The options market was implying about a ten percent move in either direction. Opened up like that. We're down, we're up maybe a little under three percent right now. Which I think if you just look at the day chart here, you know, you can see we just given back um, all of those gains after making a new um, all time high or so. I mean, you know, this is not particularly encouraging, especially when you consider the fact that, you know, about a month ago we had really highs were put in in Microsoft and in, in Apple and in, in some of the biggest names in the NASDAQ guys. So, yeah, they bounced a little bit over the last couple of days, but they are still below those uptrends that have been in place from their lows in January, October. So it seems like the sentiment is definitely yeah. shifting here and it wasn't going to happen like that. It's taken five or six weeks, you know, since that July 18, 19 period. But if NVIDIA were to give back all of these day gains, it closed down in the day, 
follow through lower tomorrow. Is this trade done for a bit, guy? Well, we talked about it um, either two days ago or yesterday, the reversal we saw in NVIDIA, I think it was two days ago, where it, that day it actually made an all-time high. I think it was 482 and change, and then it closed in the 450s on what I said was one and a half times normal volume. So as I'm looking at it now, stock that typically trades 52 million shares is trading now 80 million shares. So we're on course to do about two times normal volume on another reversal day. So, you know, people get honest. They say we're haters. And, and I've said this on the show. I've said it on our shows. NVIDIA is an extraordinarily important company. There's no underestimating the importance of NVIDIA. And they've really inserted themselves into the conversation as to one of the 10, 15, 20 most important companies in the world. The problem that I think I have with it, and I know you probably have with it as well, it's not the company, it's the valuation and it's the excitement around it. Because unfortunately, we've seen this before. You know, NVIDIA will remain an important company. The problem with the space that they find themselves in, if you go over history, it is, a, it is an industry that gets commoditized where margins are typically at their peak on the innovation stage and then continue to dwindle until seemingly everybody gets into it. And you'll talk to me about total addressable market, and I get it. Um, that pie will be there. It's just the amount of people splitting that pie, I think, will continue to grow, which by definition means margins come down, which by definition means you don't pay as much for a dollar's worth of earnings. Again, not an indictment on NVIDIA by any stretch. It's more of an indictment on historical norms and some of the things that we've seen in our career before. And to answer your question, Yes, if this stock were to close lower today, which it was on the verge of doing a couple hours ago, it has bounced, seemingly giving it back now. That would not be particularly good price action. I think everybody would agree with that. Yeah, and just take a look at AMD. So uh, again, by the end of the year, they might have some of these kind of higher end uh, graphics chips that could be used to train these large uh, language models and, and compete with NVIDIA and their H100 chips. But here's the deal. They're going to compete on price with a lesser product. And, and and again, like the fact that the stock guy is making multi-month lows right here, it's below that uptrend that's been in place from you know the, the start of this year. That 200-day moving average down there looks like a foregone conclusion about... 92 or so so we're starting to see some of the biggest names in technology break those uptrends so technical breaks at a time where there's not a whole heck of a lot of valuation support when we have maybe what is a very um you know kind of uh i, I don't know it's just an epic hype cycle coming to to an end here listen there's going to be another trade in the ai thing you just have to take a little froth out of it and then i just say keep an eye on this smh the etf that tracks the semiconductor index we know that nvidia is one of the largest components about 20 percent tsm uh, taiwan semiconductor second largest at 10 you know it still held that uptrend so until the semis break you know what I mean? Like, I, I think there's room to go lower in the QQQ in the NASDAQ 100 here. So that's just my two cents. And if you look at the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100 chart, it looks basically the same as the SMH. It's a bit steeper here, but it's also holding guy that 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 uptrend that's been in place. But that man, that 200 day in the in the NASDAQ 100 all the way down there at 13,100. Mm -hmm. It seems lonely down there, doesn't it? You know, without question, I'm reading the comments. AI is not a commodity. I didn't say that AI was a commodity. Maybe it's people are talking about it in the tech. You know, I think the chips in the space could potentially be commoditized. And maybe we are years away from it. I think things happen faster. We haven't even brought up the fact that, you know, we're going to hear from some of these Fed geniuses. You know, they could throw a wet towel on this entire thing. And, you know, if you listen to the Republican debates last night, they're all clearly concerned about China, and they should be concerned about China. Some of them referenced 
the potential uh, for something in Taiwan, which has been my concern for a long, unfounded, by the way, but it doesn't mean that concern has gone away. And just go back and listen to what NVIDIA said a couple months ago. I mean, they obviously share an equal concern about potential hostilities in Taiwan and what it would mean for their business. So there's a lot to love about it. I get it. I think Rosenblatt or somebody put an $1,100 price target on NVIDIA, which would suggest it north of a $2 trillion company, which it may wind up being at some time down the road. But I think right now the exuberance around it is sort of exhausted itself. And again, for emphasis, if this, and it's a big if, if this stock were to close lower on the day, if it were in fact to trade the two times normal volume, which it's on pace to do, that wouldn't be a particularly good thing technically. Yeah, no doubt. All right, let's just quickly look at the charts in the S&P 500 before we get to Liz. And we got a lot to talk about with Liz. But, um, you know, the S&P, we, we had flagged that kind of 4,200 breakout level. And if you go back to late May, it ended up breaking out on that move that NVIDIA had right after its earnings um, back on, I think it was May 24th or so. So we bounced off that kind of 4,350 level here. We reversed today, though, um, and it really feels like 4,200 guy is a foregone conclusion. Um, 4,140. Is that rising 200-day moving average? But don't take our word for it. Let's look at worth charting. That would be Carter Braxton worth. And I'm not even going to do what he does, but this was in his note this morning, guys. This is why this is one of the first reads that I have um, every day here. It definitely on the technical front, probably one of the only things I look at this closely, guy. And if you just look at the second chart, he puts in that uptrend. You see the fact that we had already broken that uptrend, rejected at it, so past support becomes resistance and then if you see what he's doing there i think he's making a little bit of a head and shoulders uh top formation guy and if you put that together with the uptrend you know this is the spot you want to lay into the s p 500 you want to do it in front of the jackson whole thing tomorrow um i don't know technically it looks like a pretty decent setup guy i agree i mean carter's work speaks for itself so i mean you know he's he's reiterating some of the things that i've thought and again we in terms of some of these moves, yeah, we've clearly gotten it wrong. But you look at it now, and again, the reversal we saw in the S&P today, and the reversal, obviously, in the broader indices today, that is something to watch for. I mean, I think the fact yesterday the market rallied, obviously, during the day on the hope that NVIDIA would do what it did. It did. And I also think it rallied on that weak economic data that we got. You saw bond yields move about 11, 12 basis points, which is seemingly normal in this day and age to the downside. So yields came in, stock market like that, the market went up. Today, yields seemingly sort of meandering. I think there's obviously more to that story. I continue to watch other things that are seemingly problematic that more and more people are talking about, not least of which what's going on with Japan, with their yields, with their currency. Obviously, China's currency concerns me. But to your point about the chart and throw it up again, you know, I think that little mini head and shoulders, and that's what it is, a mini head and shoulders, I think it'll come to fruition. And 43.50, the level we traded down to and bounced, that made sense. But the next level, if we go back to that prior chart that we annotated, yeah, that 4,200-ish looks like it's got, uh, to me, it looks like it's got a giant bullseye. And it'll probably coincide with the moving average at some point moving up in correlation. So we'll see. All right, let's do it. EY from SoFi. No way. No, no way. way. It's happening, no way. guy. It's happening. There, Look oh, at that face. Whoop. There she is. <laughs> um, you know, we, we did a pod with Liz on Monday, which we, we always did. do uh, with Liz on the on the tape podcast. And what do we, guy, did you even look at the title? Did you see what we called the, the Monday pod? 
It was like she's back or something. No, she's the it? one. She's the one. She's Which the one. Is, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, correct. That's a great song, by the way. That, oh, she's the one. All right. So, so Liz, she you're is. The one. By the way, can I tell you something? She is. She absolutely is. And we should tell her now, Dan, in her absence, whilst she was gone, the amount of comments, and oddly enough, the comment section was, yeah. we miss Elizabeth, where's EY? I mean, yeah, all over that. the place. So people were, what do they call it when you pine for something, Dan? They, they, pine, they pine for Liz. Oh. Um, but but we have a huge day. Right, listen, this next 20 minutes with Liz is going to be amazing. But on wow. Monday, on Monday, we are doing another On The Tape podcast with Liz, Monday morning. And then we are... Doing what you call jackassing it uptown, guys. Yeah, sure. XM satellite radio studios, and Liz is gonna be in studio with us at noon. It's madness. And you guys can call in. You can pick her brain. It's what is the number? It's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six seven eight six six. Look at me. So oh, look at eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Maybe we can like superimpose Liz in that. Yeah, uh, thing just have right me there. rising up from the background. All right, Liz. <laughs> let's talk here a little bit. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to opine on, on, on Carter's work on the S&P 500. I think, you know, uh, we, we're all in agreement. I think you think lower. We think lower. Uh, the charts probably don't uh -huh. mean a whole heck of a lot to you. It's more about maybe tomorrow, uh, maybe the shift in sentiment as it relates to some of these AI names. When you see a stock like NVIDIA, and I'm not asking you to comment on the results or, or it, you know, valuation or this, but, you know, expectations were really high. Stock gapped up 10%. Now mm -hmm. it's given most of that back. And then if you just look at some of the other mega caps here, do you think that, that the kind of the mood is changing at this point for, for the AI narrative, at least in the near term, and then basically what you're seeing in mega cap tech? Uh, yes, I'll start with the punchline, which probably will come as a surprise to absolutely no one. I think the irrational exuberance has hung up its spurs. And what happened with NVIDIA last night is indicative of that. I was on a program called CNBC Halftime Report yesterday, and we talked about NVIDIA really being a sentiment play at this point. Now look, they delivered on results, they beat on revenues, they raised guidance, they delivered on the fundamentals that people hoped that they would. And they bounced after hours, which is great, but then gave a lot of it back, and the market didn't follow the bounce. And I think that's the big sentiment shift that occurred. NVIDIA has been the poster child for this AI exuberance. I am not saying, let me be very clear, I am not saying that AI doesn't deserve optimism. I think it does deserve optimism. And I do think it's going to be innovative for many, many industries. I just don't think it's going to be innovative at 50 to 80 times earnings in the next six to 12 months. So it has to go through a couple cycles and it has to go through a couple times of price discovery and company discovery, meaning I think a lot of people put all of their eggs in a basket of one company saying it's going to be the only winner forever and for always. And I just don't think that's possible. So what's happening right now is that I don't think the market has enough buyers under the surface from these levels to say, you know what, everything's fine. We're just going to keep whistling past the graveyard. So I do think that this is a pretty big sentiment shift. And I think that NVIDIA posting positive results and increasing guidance, but still not being able to prop up the rest of the market is something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, listen, I think we're all in agreement going back to, you know, 24 hours ago when, when Doug was on with us. I mean, I think that's exactly what we kind of laid out. And I think 
the fact that the broader market um, was first to basically reject the enthusiasm just in the last, you know, since the, uh, you know, last night, the QQQ, the, the spy, they're all up in sympathy a little bit, but they quickly uh, gave it all back guy. And so, you know, I, I guess the question mm -hmm. that I have, you know, this narrative about, you know, this broadening out that we were hearing about because, okay, financials got earnings season kicked off in mid July and those started to join the party and the stocks reacted fairly favorably, uh, low expectations and the like sort of thing. But now at this point, you know, if you've lost these, these top, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 names that make up, you know, almost 30% of the S and P 500, 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. Um, and you know, you, 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 I don't know where the leadership comes from, I guess, you know, if you think about how quickly, let's say things like home builders, which don't make up a big part of the S and P five, you know, like, and you think about it, financials, banks have given a lot back, you know, energy, um, Okay, is acting okay. You know, that's a name we talked about XLE mm -hmm. earlier in the week. You know, what 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 will the leadership be if we are gonna kind of let's say catch some support in and around 4,200 and work our way back to 4,600, maybe on the way back to the all-time highs in 4,800 in the S&P 500? Well, well, given given the weight and given the size of the companies, the only leadership that could potentially do that would be a bottoming out a lot of these high growth, high valuation tech names, which very well might happen. It's just a question of as to what level the S&P gets to before, you know, they get back on their horse. It's clearly not going to be on the back of banks, I, I don't think, because, you know, we've had that conversation. I think banks are challenged. And I have a question for Elizabeth or more of a statement and a question. You know, energy is not big enough. Healthcare is not big enough. Industrials are probably not big enough. And obviously, you know, we can throw up a Boeing chart today just to see how sort of volatile that space could potentially be. So it's going to have to come from the leadership that was there before. A lot of people don't think that leadership can manifest itself again, which will be somewhat problematic. But, you know, Liz has been away for a while. But as I said on Monday, a lot of things have happened in the bond market um, that I think she had been fearing. We'll do it on this show here. You know, it's the inversion that's a problem. But as Liz has said a number of times, it's the re-steepening of the curve that concerns her. And the re-steepening, Elizabeth, is taking place with the 10-year yield moving higher, which historically has been problematic. So, you know, that's something that we're obviously not, I don't think we're talking enough about, but you're watching it for sure, I know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a good segue if the people behind the scenes can bring up the first chart from my note. I know you guys usually like to introduce it, but I'm going to do it myself this time. All right, economic surprise indexes. First of all, the note this week is titled Caught in a Riptide because there are a lot of cross currents going on and because I've been spending a lot of time at the beach this summer and that's where I'm getting my inspiration from. <laughs> so, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> These economic surprise indexes, when you look across oceans, if you look at that green line, that is the US. You can see that that is the one that is a standout as a positive surprise. The rest of the countries have either been kind of meh to sideways or down, obviously negatively surprising. Here's the thing, and I'm, I'm literally going to read this from my own blog because sometimes you make really good points in print and then you forget how to say it out loud. Markets trade on expectations more often than they do on events. The difficult part is that these indexes are using data from prior periods to indicate whether we beat or missed expectations. So the expectations component is in effect backward looking, but we invest for the future. So to Guy's point, the 10-year yield has been rising. The expectations for economic growth, also due to the Atlanta GDP, whatever it's called, GDP Nowcast or something that says we're going to grow by 5.8%, the 10-year goes up because it expects that economic growth is going to get stronger. That also means that inflation is probably going to stick around and we've got higher rates for longer. Here's the issue. 
When the yield curve is inverted like it was, the 10-year going up and the two-year not really moving creates what's called a bear steepener. It's a bear steepener because short-term rates did not come down. When short-term rates come down, it becomes more bullish for stocks. So we've got this conundrum right now where economic data has surprised to the upside in the U.S. comparatively to other countries. The 10-year rises still hard on stocks, though, at these valuations and hard on what has always been public enemy number one, which is inflation. So I think there's a little bit of an issue going on in markets right now that, oh, the the exuberance or all the buying activity that's happened is driven by stronger economic data. I don't think that that is the right thing to hang our hat on. So as we move forward through the rest of the year, I still think, and, and to Guy's point about banks before, financials have not traded well at all through any of this, banks in particular. And I think that the market is sniffing out some kind of credit deterioration, credit crunch, or at worst, a credit event. If the market is right about that, we're going to see a yield curve that fixes itself very quickly, but in probably violent fashion for both the bond market and the stock market. Yeah, Guy, you've been talking about deterioration in credit for a while. We've been tracking that HYG, the high yield um, you know, uh, credit index there. And, and again, it doesn't move a whole heck of a lot, but when it does, and, and, and the fact that it is so far from its you know, two years ago sort of highs, if you will, after the bounce back and the fears that existed during the pandemic, I think that's something really interesting to track. But Guy, we've also been looking at that 10-year just in and of itself, and you know, Carter has kind of spoken to this. Yeah, well, we had a brief new high in this cycle here a little bit, but it came back really hard yesterday, right? And then if you see like that Atlanta Fed GDP now estimate that that uh, Liz just mentioned here, I mean, what recession, dude? It's It's been pushed out. You know what I mean? You start getting numbers um, like that. I would say this, that the, the bigger, the juicier GDP number that you're likely to get is probably the greater chance that you have a really hard, like there's some sort of pull forward of, of demand or something like that. Maybe it's just gotten a bit lumpy in where we are in this stage of the economic recovery or so. And so maybe it makes it that much likelier when you come off a number like that, if we do have a five plus number or something like that, that you could have two consecutive neg negative quarters, but we won't know that until after the fact anyway, guy. It's interesting, you know, and I'm reading the comments again, but you know, what we've outlined is a, when this, when the yield curve went inverted, that wasn't particularly good. And listen, quite frankly, I don't think it was good, but the market didn't seem to care. But, you know, I view a, when it goes inverted to the extent that we were inverted and the, the duration with we were inverted, not a good thing. The re-steepening historically is not a good thing either. And people are saying you can't have it both ways, which I understand that commentary. Here's the problem, though. For years, you had it both ways in terms of where yields going for being bullish for the market. So the pendulum mm -hmm. does swing back the other way, where historically, at least over the last decade or so, everything that's happened has been bullish for equities. You're at a point now where regardless almost of what happens with the yield curve or yields, it could be bearish, Dan. Yeah. And, and Liz, in your note, um, you're talking also about real yields. And I think this is you know, a really important point too, right? So the Fed has been talking about you know, raising interest rates now um, for 18 and a half months to battle inflation. And, and if you think about, you know, you're taking the Fed funds rate, less inflation, and then you have um, a real yield there, right? And so the fact is, and Guy's been all over this all summer, that we're starting to see inflationary pressures pick up a little bit, which is one of the reasons why, as we think about Jackson Hole tomorrow, I, I don't think the Fed 
is in a position to, to roll out the mission accomplished banner at this point. So thought, thoughts on that, Liz? Well, most market participants expect the Fed to deliver a hawkish message tomorrow. So I don't think a hawkish message would be met with any real pessimism. I think it would be probably pretty expected. So last year, he gave that infamous eight-minute speech that was pretty hawkish and the market hated it. This year, we're kind of expecting it. So I actually think a dovish message would be an issue. But that's neither here nor there in this chart. This chart is showing us the real 10-year yields of major economies, the US, Germany, Japan, and the UK, the illustration here, again, this is back to our earlier conversation. The U.S. is again in green. And if you look at just the growth over the last month, the 10-year yield, the 10-year real yield in the U.S. has grown faster than any of the other major nations. The U.K. has grown pretty quickly as well, but the, the U.S. has still outpaced it. So what does that mean? If we move to the next chart, which is about currencies, a lot of times we talk about interest rate differentials driving currency moves. The U.S. dollar has been quite strong over the last month or so. Can we put up the next one, please? Gents, ladies and gents, thank you. So this is major currencies versus the dollar. The dollar is not on this chart. This is all versus the dollar. Notice that every single one of those lines is moving downward recently because the dollar has strengthened, because the interest rate differential has grown. So it's more attractive to invest in the US right now because of that interest rate differential. I'm gonna quote myself one more time today. Please, please forgive me. Please. If we were in a normal economic environment, a strengthening currency along with a strong interest rate differential and improving economic data would all be positive signs for the U.S. The trouble with this concept is that monetary policy has been taken to a restrictive level in order to constrict capital and cool economic data. So far, it hasn't had the full intended effect. That is what we are waiting for. So this is something where I think it could make fools of people who expect that we are in the clear. I do not think the Fed is going to send an in the clear message. I do not think we are in the clear. If investors are investing as if we are, I would caution you to be careful that things probably do not stay in this place. And we've talked about not only the interest rate moves, but the difference between what the PEs are doing and the divergence of PEs going up while rates are going up. That is not the way that relationship works. We are still in that sort of situation right now where you've got this huge gap between what PEs are doing and what real rates are doing. At some point, that gap closes. And I don't think, regardless of which line moves, it's probably not for a good reason. All right. So let me take a look at this real quick. There might be some colorblind folks out there, which apparently is, is happens more frequently in men, um, which I, you know, I don't really know. But to the extent that you can't see what's going on, let me just point a couple things out. The two underperformers on that chart, the ones that are both at the bottom of the chart as you look at August, one is the Japanese yen versus the dollar. The other is the Chinese renminbi. I think I said that correctly against the U.S. dollar. Why are they important? The Japanese own by far the largest holders of our treasury. As their, as their currency weakens, they're going to have to start doing things to support their currency, probably by selling treasuries uh, and buying yen. We'll see how that plays out, but that's out there, and that's not working out particularly well for them as their yield curve controls are seemingly faltering. China, obviously, the other side of this equation, we remember what happened eight years ago. Their currency continues to weaken. The Chinese government is telling banks to basically come in and try to support their currency. It's not working. Neither of those things are bullish. So the two things that stand out to me are both the yen and obviously the yuan or the renminbi, Dan Nathan. That's how I look and interpret this chart. 
Yeah, and to your point, if they're going to support uh, the currency of the yen, they have to sell treasuries that makes yields go higher, right? And so there's a lot of things that I think that we were most focused about what our U.S. Federal Reserve was doing as it relates to their desire, right, to curb inflation here and, and tighten monetary policy. But there's other powers um, at play here. Um Okay, let's go back to the stock market um, a little bit here. There's a couple things that, you know, Guy, you just mentioned Boeing and, you know, let, let, let's pull up a one-year chart of Boeing and, and there's some like production problem with the 737 again. And it's one of their kind of makers of the wide body jets and the 737 Max and something there. But, you know, that was a really long base. And, and you know, if we want to pull it out to a five-year for a second, Guy, also, is that this thing is still well, well off those all-time highs, you know, before they had... Um, those crashes of the 737 max and then you saw what happened obviously um during the pandemic but that was like a nice nice consolidation nice breakout and it seems like back to you know break just back to the drawing board again you know what I yeah mean? and i'm not it. and i'm not trying to just pick on boeing i was just bringing it up as sort of an example of what could potentially take us back up what industries if you look at boeing which we will do obviously i mean if you back out that huge downdraft in early 2020 i mean the stock has gone sideways basically for the last three years around this 215 to 225 level on what has been a pretty extraordinarily broader market. So listen, a lot of Boeing's woes are self-inflicted wounds without question, not all of them, but most of them. So we'll see how it shakes itself out. You know, I don't think, quite frankly, I don't think it's getting away from you on either side of the ledger, neither up nor down. But my point again, being like, if you're looking for industrials to provide that strength or to provide that you know, buoyancy for the S&P. I think you're looking in the wrong spot. Well, and the other place, Liz, I was going to go to is GM. I mean, look, just look at this GM. Uh, you know, again, we'll throw this in the kind of industrial camp here. I mean, this this stock trade is horrible. I mean, and and let's be clear. I mean, it's been a great trading stock. And we talked about that kind of earlier in the week here a little bit. But then you back this thing out, you know, I mean, it's cheap valuation. You know, Mary Barra, every time she has the opportunity to talk about how excited they are about their transition towards a, you know, EV fleet but they're losing a lot of money doing it. We know that they have this UAW, um, you know, contract issue that I think it's going to come due um, today or so. But look at that. And one of the reasons why we love doing market call, it's a visual medium here. We, we really lean on Carter and the work. But just look at that chart. Look at that flat 200-day moving average, right? That's a multi-year chart. Look at where the support is. I mean, that's a trading range. Um, but from an investment standpoint, I think you got you got to be careful here. So, Liz, thoughts on industrials, because we got that GDP now read right north of five percent. But some of these stocks, you know, that you would think make up a good part of that economic activity here. Um, the stocks are saying something a little different. Yeah, well, the and the GDP now read, if I'm correct, if I'm recalling this correct, I think is really due to an increase in private investment and strength in the consumer. So here's the thing about industrials. And first of all, this chart, this is like what you want your EKG to look like, not what you want your stock chart to look like, right? You want it to be flat and in a range and pretty calm. This is not really a holding that you'd get super excited about having had for the last year. Anywho, industrials, or if we just talk about autos in general, Think about what's happened with used car prices. Now, I realize that auto companies are not making their money necessarily on used car prices. They're making it on new cars. However, used car prices have fallen off a cliff. We are now past the period where there's all this demand for cars and no supply and prices are out of completely out of control. People still willing to pay them. 
that's dead and gone. It hasn't entirely baked through into inflation yet. It hasn't shown up in the used car index yet. That usually takes one to two months. So the positive thing about that is that it should create a drag on inflation over the next one to two months. That's great. The negative thing about that is that if there isn't a supply constraint, prices do not need to be as high. If used car prices are falling, chances are new car prices cannot experience as much of a pass-through. And as we've talked about many times, if pricing power goes away, revenues and margins are going to suffer. So some of these companies that have enjoyed really expanded margins because of demand and because of the unique situation that was created by the pandemic, that situation is now waning and they're not going to enjoy those fat margins any longer. So industrials, if we're talking about autos, uh, some of them fall in consumer discretionary, as we know. But if we're talking about autos, I think that the pricing power is waning. The other thing about industrials is that the part of the economy that has been pretty decidedly weak, if not in recessionary territory, is the manufacturing part of the economy. And we've gotten weaker data in the last day or so on that as well. We're not out of the woods on the manufacturing side. And there are things, activity levels, if you look at things like average weekly hours worked, that's fallen down to actually below pre-pandemic levels. So you have to think about it from what drives industrials, what drives some of those cyclicals. And I think industrials are still in this kind of middling through process. If we do hit the skids, in the economy at least, I would expect them to draw down. Obviously, that usually happens. The good thing about a lot of the cyclical sectors is that they didn't get as inflated as some of the growthy ones. So maybe the drawdown won't be as dramatic. I got a newsflash, Dan, yeah. by the way. Sorry. Aaron Judge dialed nine again uh, today. Three dongs yesterday and dialed nine here. So he's seemingly getting a bit locked in as, as a lot of people. Still, in the still, on section, the bottom, still on the bottom of the AL East. Though, yes, right? they are. Those Elizabeth, Yankees? Which was the next thing I was going to say. Do you know where the Brewers are? Wait, wait, yeah, wait. They're at, the top, where... they're the top, at the top. They're the top. At the top of the NL Central. Okay, yeah, I just want to make you. sure. Appreciate that. No, yeah. you make an excellent <laughs> point. Uh, my point was then going to be that it might be too little too late, Dan, but I digress. A, a little bit. Um, <laughs> I, only hit, I want to hit one other thing um, before we get out of here. So yesterday with Doug Cass, he mentioned uh, the Russell 2000. So we were talking about credit deterioration. We were talking about access to, to, to capital at much higher rates and who gets hit first and this and that, whatever. I mean, the move from... 2000 in the Russell 2000, maybe the guys could pull uh, up a chart here, um, you know, right to its 200 day moving average in, in basically a straight line in just a few weeks. Is that saying a little something to you? Because I think a lot of folks, you know, just a few weeks ago or a month ago were saying, listen, it's threatening a breakout here. You know what I mean? And, and it was maybe telling a little bit of a story or a different story here. Thoughts on small caps. And, and as you're thinking about just kind of just some of the moves and rates and where inflation is and and the strength of consumer and some of these GDP readings. Was that a question for me? I thought that was for Guy. You know that you're the oh. small, you're the small oh. cap. I I was kind of jealous that he asked. Wizard. Guy. Okay, of course. So here, this is the other thing. This is kind of in line with when you think about the cyclical side of the economy. I'm going to take energy out of this though, mm -hmm. out of that little cyclical bucket because I think energy is being driven by some other things, and I think that energy companies are being driven by some other things, but. Small caps, you are correct, did not have the breakout that many hoped. They started to join in the broadening out of the market, the broadening out of the strength, and the emergence of new leadership that occurred in July. July was a really strong month, and I think that gave a lot of bulls something to hang their hat on. They said, look, small caps are participating, cyclicals are participating, this is good. Here's the problem. We're still in the late part of the cycle. 
we have not yet transitioned to the early part of the cycle. Small caps do really well in the early part of the cycle. And this entire time, I continue to say things like respect the cycle. It is difficult, if not impossible, I've never seen it happen, to transition from late to early without some kind of drawdown in between. So there are some things about this market, as much as I hate to see small caps go down, there are some things about this market that are making better sense to me, and I like it when things make sense. I like it when, if rates are going up, growth, growth should take it on the chin. If we're expecting some kind of contraction, a credit event, or the Fed is going to get what they want by cooling demand and contracting the economy, small caps should kind of go down, give some back, or at best, go sideways. So some of this is making sense right now. It could happen very quickly. If we have a drawdown, if we confirm some sort of contraction in growth, small caps probably bounce pretty quickly along with something like financials, and you have to be ready for it when it happens. Let me just opine for a second, and I think Elizabeth would agree with this. Um, a big bounce in the small caps was predicated on a lot of these regional banks getting back on the horse. So big component of small caps, a lot of these small and mid-sized banks, they all bounced after that March, April-ish low, which helped clearly. But I'm looking at two things, and I'm actually reading the comments, and I was looking at this prior, but Bank of America, which is a quarter of a trillion dollar company-ish, is within a whisper of a multi-year low, and Citigroup, which I think is an $80 billion bank, is within a whisper of a multi-year low. So something is clearly going on there, uh, and this is something that Doug Cass has pointed out as well. So to not pay attention, and I'm not suggesting we're doing this, but to not pay attention to the weakness in the banks, I think might be foolish, especially with some of the things that I think we're on the verge of, Dan. Yeah, and then <clears throat> just the last thing I'll just say is that, you know, we had a bunch of earnings um, this week, important ones, obviously, NVIDIA, Snowflake, you know, it's still a big market cap company, probably not nearly as important um, as, as some of the others that, uh, you know, Splunk is up 10, 12 percent or something like that. But, you know, I, I like to look at these just from a sentiment standpoint and just kind of see like positioning into the th uh, into the event versus expectations and then how stocks, you know, react afterwards. Next week, I think there's just Salesforce guy and this one might be interesting. You know, this is a, a company or at least a stock um, that that caught a little steam in the air boom they started talking more and more about it and how they're going to integrate large language models into some of their um, processes and the like here but it's come off a bit it's also sitting on um, some, some technical su support so I, I suspect that if the fundamentals start to abate a bit if the sentiment cools a bit then the technicals become increasingly more important that's why we're kind of focused on it uh, a little bit so we'll be watching the salesforce.com uh, next week Yes, we will. I appreciate that. I love the fact that EY is back. Um, I'm still holding out hope that somehow the Yankees can right the ship, albeit understanding late in the season. The Mets season, as you know, folks, has been over for quite some time. Uh, if the Yankees fail to make the postseason, I will be rooting for Elizabeth's Brewers as my want to do. And oh I have to goodness. apologize that I was unsuccessful in my attempt to get you to throw out the first pitch at a Brewer game. It's not for lack of effort, I will say. But again, I'll evolve next year to effort that, which is not a verb, by the way, but I use it as one. I want to thank Elizabeth Young for joining us. It's so great to have her back. Monday on the radio show is going to be effing crazy because as nuts as I get on this, it could even be more off the rails on the radio show. Thank the audience. Thank the commentary. Appreciate it. I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet. Financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Of course, SoFi Elizabeth, get your money right. All in one app.
Look at that. We didn't even rehearse that, Dan. <laughs> uh, we won't see you tomorrow unless something crazy happens. Definitely see you Monday. And that's it. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.